At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 357th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, we want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is, I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. This Urban Farm podcast is brought to you by Seed Bank Box, a monthly seed subscription for the urban farmer. Seed Bank Box is one great big seed surprise. Each month you get a shipment with 8 to 10 varieties of seeds, along with a description and planting instructions. Hit the Seed Bank Lottery. Get more information at urbanfarm.org forward slash seedbankbox. Today on our podcast, we have someone who transforms food with healthy microbes. We're talking with Alex Lewin all about fermentation. Alex grew up on the East Coast where he discovered that one of his gifts is the ability to coexist side by side with friendly bacteria. While others struggle with it, Alex embraces them. As a graduate of Harvard, the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts, and the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, he seeks to create a healthier and tastier world by spreading the good news about fermentation and real food. Alex is the co-author of Kombucha, Kafir, and Beyond, and the author of Real Food Fermentation, Preserving Whole Fresh Food with Live Cultures in Your Home Kitchen. Welcome to the show today, Alex. Are you ready to rock fermentation? I sure am. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, definitely. I got interested in health and nutrition because my dad had heart disease and I wanted to understand more about where it came from and I suppose how I could avoid it. Yeah. And I started reading books about health and nutrition and coming from a math and physics type background, I was reading these books about health and nutrition and I thought they would all sort of agree on even basic fundamental things. Oh, yeah. Right? And they all said completely different things. You know, one said, well, you must have protein and fat and carbohydrates together. And another one said, you mustn't ever have protein and carbohydrates together because you can't digest them the same. Right. I kept reading all these books and they were saying different things. And finally, I started seeing some patterns and understanding some things. So that's sort of one part of the journey. Another part of the journey was more culinary. Like I got interested in kimchi and I started making kimchi. Mm. And then turning point for me was a book called 
The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. Oh, yeah. That's a book about food movements, underground food movements, and that sort of blew my mind and got me interested in what was happening outside the mainstream, I guess. And then I read a book about fermentation. I was like, you can do that with cabbage? (laughs) And it's not dangerous. And then I I wound up going to cooking school. I wound up going to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, learning about how to interact with whole human beings, I suppose. And I did some work with sustainable energy and sustainability. And finally, I put it all together. And I'm making it sound like very neat and tidy, but it was actually very wandering. And it took a surprisingly long time to put all these puzzle pieces together. And when I did, I wound up with fermentation, among other things. Yeah. And one of the things that I just want to acknowledge you for is your journey. You know, so many people out there, they pick one thing early in life and they do it their entire life and they may not necessarily be happy. But what you did is you took a journey and tried many things and you finally stumbled upon or got to the place that, you know, fills your heart. And I could tell by your book, I've got your book here, Real Food Fermentation in front of me. It's a beautiful book, man. Thank you. Thanks for sending it over to me. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while, but I can tell that you're passionate about this. Yeah. And to your point, I think our society, our culture, you know, whatever United States as of 2018, we have lots of people who are good at analyzing things like we're very good at analytic, but we're not as good at integrative and, Mm. you know, taking five things that seem unrelated and saying, oh, well, actually, these are part of a bigger pattern. And here's how they all connect and what we can learn about, you know, how they connect and how they've connected in the past. And now they're actually part of one bigger thing. Yeah. Well, that's what we do in permaculture. We study how everything is connected. Right. And to the point of ecosystem, historically, in traditional medicine of the West, we've thought of a human as being one organism. Right. But now it's coming into the even the mainstream that actually only 10% of the cells in the human body are human cells and the rest are microbes, mostly bacteria. So we are actually entire ecosystems contained in a bag of skin. And the typical mainstream Western medicine is like looking at all these unrelated seeming systems in the body and saying, oh, how do we cure this? And the Eastern medical systems, if I can cast a very broad net, Mm -hmm. are more focused on balance and keeping energies in balance. And all of a sudden, if you realize that the human body is actually an ecosystem, the idea of balance literally makes sense because there are literally different forces going on inside your body rather than being just one sort of organism. That's interesting to me when I had that insight. Balance makes more sense in a large system with a lot of different forces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's good to start getting in touch with that and kind of figuring it out because for me, that was one of the keys to finding an eating methodology that worked for me. You know, they have all these diets on the market and you're not supposed to be interviewing me, but I'm going to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) They have all these diets on the market, you know, this diet and that diet, and you're supposed to eat this way. And you find in one, they say, do it this way. And you find in another, they, it says, no, you can't do it that way, like you said earlier. And yeah. really exploring and spending some time to pay attention to what you're eating, keeping a food journal, figuring out how it makes you feel when you eat particular things, it's really important. And that's the discovery process. It took me about 55 years, but it, I finally figured out what makes me feel best when I eat it and what I can't eat. And there's a whole list of things that I can't eat, but I can eat them. But if I do, I just feel like, you know, (laughs) doo-doo. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. 
that's another interesting insight is that our, I guess we're very fad driven. Like oh, yes. all of a sudden everyone has to eat acai berries, right? Yep. You know, next week everyone has to eat something else. Pick it. Turmeric. Yeah, exactly. Part of it is everyone's different. And that's what gets lost in this right. is that, you know, what works for one person might not work for another. Precisely. And that was an important thing that was drilled into me lovingly, I guess at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, the idea of bio-individuality. And just because I know what works for me doesn't mean that I should try to make everyone else do that too. Right. Wow, you used a word I've never heard before, bio-individuality. Just give me 30 seconds on that, would you? (laughs) Like what it means? Yeah. It's nothing more than the idea that we're all different and each of us has our own different ecosystem and just what works for one person might or might not work for another. Yeah. And that that has to be kept in mind pretty close to front of mind when talking to somebody about their health. Right. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. Perfect. Well, you know, I love this topic that we're on and we could talk about it probably for the next two hours. And I have this beautiful book sitting in front of me that I want to get to real food fermentation. How did this book come about? I had been giving classes on fermenting and I'd been doing talks and demos and out of the blue, I got a phone call from a publisher and the publisher said, we're looking for somebody to write a book about fermentation with us. Wow. Are you interested? And I thought about it and I said, sure. And it turns out that somebody I know had been contacted to write a book about something else. Mm-hmm. And while they were on the phone with him, they asked him, do you know somebody who could write a book about fermentation? And he <laughs> said, sure, call Alex Lewin. And so that's how it happened. Wow. That's magic. That is magic. I love it. Yes. And you never know what conversation you have with somebody is going to be important, which relationship is going to turn out to lead to a book. Right. So it's important to treat every relationship with some care. Perfect. So real food fermentation. Let's start off with real food. When I was a professor at Arizona State University, I used to have my students write a paper called What is Real Food? So I'm going to ask you that question. What is real food? Wow. You were ahead of the curve, sir. (laughs) I'll take it. It's easier to say what fake food is. And some of this territory has been trodden on pretty thoroughly by, say, Michael Pollan, who says anything your grandmother wouldn't recognize. Oh, I love that definition. Yeah. That's a pretty good one. Yep. For me, real food is food that you understand where it came from and how it got into the form that it's in. Mm -hmm. Food that doesn't require industrial processes to create food that you could imagine putting together in your home kitchen, I think. So this whole notion of fermentation, there can be a whole lot of ooze with it. I'm an urban farmer. I've been growing food for over 40 years. I've fermented some things in the past, and there's still some questions for me about, is this right? So how do you kind of navigate your way through that? People are nervous about fermenting sometimes because there are lots of bad things that can happen when you leave food outside of the refrigerator Mm -hmm. and some of them can be dangerous. So the question is, how do we make sure that we don't create something that's dangerous? One of the things I talk about is that fermenting, you're forming an alliance with some of the microbes and you need to create the conditions under which the friendly microbes, the microbes that are friendly to humans, Mm -hmm. will do their thing. So with making sauerkraut, for instance, you create an environment with 
a certain amount of salt and not very much air. And that will allow the microbes that will ferment the cabbage into sauerkraut, it'll allow them to multiply and it'll prevent some of the other ones from multiplying. And then after not too long, these microbes have created an acidic environment. And once things get to a certain level of acidity, Mm -hmm. then there's really very little that will go wrong. Ah. So with a lot of vegetable ferments, that's the strategy. Mm -hmm. Create conditions in the initial stage that will lead to acidity. Then after that, you're home free. And the nature of it is that if you fail in that first part, then things will go very wrong very quickly and you'll have fuzzy mold growing on things. Right. And at that point, it'll be very obvious that you don't want to eat it. Yeah. If you get past the first, you know, couple of days, say with sauerkraut, once you're past that, you're in the clear and there's really very low chance of anything going wrong after that. Uh huh. What kind of things can you ferment? That's a very good question. The good starting points for fermenting, I think, are vegetables. Sauerkraut is a good starting point because cabbage is, is cheap and available almost everywhere and is part of almost every culture. Other vegetables you can ferment. Originally, fermenting was a way of preserving food for the off-season. Right. In temperate climates, you get cabbage maybe twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall, something like that. But you need it in the winter when there are no other vegetables to eat, so you need a way to preserve it, and fermenting was that. Taking a step back, fermenting can be defined as the action of microbes on food to transform it. Right. Generally, like the easier ones to deal with are where we're transforming the carbohydrates or the starches and sugars in the food into acids. And then it becomes acidic and then it's preserved and then we're done. There are more complicated ferments where you're also transforming the proteins in the food. When you make a dry sausage with the white powder on the outside, like a salami or something like that. Right. There's fermentation involved in that. Oh, did not know that. Yeah. And that's mold. In fact, mold are the microbes that are transforming the food. That's a more advanced thing to do. Uh You can do it at home. You want to practice with other things first, like cabbage. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a whole family of dairy ferments. Everything from sour cream, yogurt, cheese, all those things are preserved milk effectively. And again, in that case, it's mostly the carbohydrates that are being acted on. The milk sugar, lactose is being converted into lactic acid. And then as a result of that, the proteins change their form and they coagulate and curdle. And that's why yogurt, sour cream have a firmer texture than milk and then cheese is firmer than that. But mostly what's happening with the kind of fermenting that I do is carbohydrates, sugars, starches are being turned into acids. Mm -hmm. And then the interesting stuff is all the stuff that's happening on a much smaller scale to create the interesting smells and tastes. Oh, yes. So how does this affect our health? That's another great question. And I'll preface this by saying (laughs) bio-individuality. Oh, yes. There are a lot of people for whom fermented foods are great. And then there are some people for whom fermented foods might not be great. And so just because something's popular and everyone's talking about fermented foods, if you eat them and it makes you feel terrible, then maybe they're not what you need. And people are starting to understand more about digestive health than they did even five or 10 years ago. And there are certain conditions which might lead to fermented foods not being what you need. But I will say that in general, when you make, I'll use sauerkraut as an example, when you make sauerkraut, if you compare it to raw cabbage, the 
microbes are breaking down some of the starches and sugars in the cabbage again. Cabbage has some vitamin C in it just when you pick it. Interestingly, when the microbes break down the cabbage, one of the byproducts of their metabolism Mm -hmm. is more vitamin C. Oh, So the microbes actually make more vitamin C and some B vitamins. And then there are other fermentation processes that make like K vitamins. These very interesting vitamins that turn out to be very important. And vitamin C in the winter historically in a lot of climates, there haven't been a lot of good sources of vitamin C. So fermented cabbage, whether it's sauerkraut or kimchi, has been a key source of vitamin C. Comparing it to say canned foods, it's a comparison I like to make. Mm -hmm. When you're canning, you take the food and you kill all of the microbes and you seal it completely so that not even a single other microbe will get in. So you're killing everything. In the process of doing that, you heat it and heating it destroys some of the vitamins. Right. Destroy some of the enzymes also. Enzymes are special proteins in foods that help us digest the food. And when you can it, you destroy some of the vitamins and all the enzymes. And when you ferment, you create more vitamins and you also create more enzymes. So fermented food is in that particular way more nutritious than canned food. Right. And there are other, you know, depending on which foods you're fermenting, often the acidity of the fermented food can be helpful to your digestion. Mm-hmm. There's some evidence that the microbes in the food that's fermented can be helpful to your digestion also, although there's some discussion about how many of those microbes will actually survive your digestive tract Mm -hmm. to get all the way to the large intestine where they need to be. And then there's some people who say, well, even if they get killed along the way, the building blocks of those microbes will be helpful to the microbes that are living there. Right. None of it is simple and we're just beginning to understand it. There's some fair amount of anecdotal evidence that fermented foods are extremely helpful Mm -hmm. beyond even the vitamins and enzymes. So that's initial answer to your question about health. Yeah. And so it's something we have to experiment with. Exactly. And keep a food journal. That's what I, you know, I like telling people that. So is this whole fermentation thing becoming more popular? Tell me about that. That's a great question because until we had, you know, these white rectangular things in our kitchens, these big white rectangular food preserving devices. Oh, yes. I think somebody said that. I think I stole that from somebody. But Uh if we look at how people have preserved foods historically, you know, well, there were refrigerators and freezers. And before that, well, there was canning. Canning is actually a high-tech food preserving method in my mind. It's only a couple hundred years old. I think it came into practice around the Napoleonic Wars, the early 1800s, and it relies on being able to make tight seals and Mm -hmm. understanding something. So before that, we had like drying and salting and fermenting. So fermenting, while it may seem like a fad, is actually a very, very (laughs) old way of doing things. The old is new. I don't think it's going away because I think... First of all, in a lot of industrial countries, we are having epidemics of digestive health problems. And I don't think epidemic is too strong a word. It might not be strong enough. It might not be strong enough. Thank you. Yeah. I watch football at least once a year. Uh I was watching a Super Bowl some year and there are these ads Judging by the amount of money that they're spending on ads Uh for digestive problem remedies, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And fermenting is a way that some of us can help restore the balance in our bodies Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't involve pills or surgery or going to a doctor's office for what is almost always a disappointing experience. Yeah. So besides getting your book, Real Food Fermentation, Preserving Whole Fresh Food with Live Cultures in Your Kitchen, is there one or two things that somebody new that's getting into this might do? Because I know it can be a little scary. 
part of it is a shift in mindset, I think. Like when our car breaks, we take it to the mechanic and they fix it. Uh-huh. Or when we need some plumbing done in our house, we call the plumber, the plumber comes and they fix it. That kind of approach doesn't work that well with our health. I think is helpful for people to decide that they're going to become a small scale expert on their own body and yeah. their own health. And like you say, you got to try things, take notes, see what works. And when you need a subcontractor, maybe to help you with a specific thing that you've isolated, then you call in, you know, a domain expert in that. And it yeah. may be a doctor, it may be a nutritionist, a nutritionist. A health coach, but you know, having an MD doctor be the first line of defense when you have a non-acute something going on yeah. often will result in disappointment and expensive bills. Yeah. When you were saying that, I was cringing a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So the pathway into fermentation, is there a simple way in? You said cabbage, you know, for those of us that are a little bit kind of, oh my gosh, can I do this? How do we get in? I think sauerkraut's a great place to start. Some people think they don't like sauerkraut. Some people think that cabbage gives them gas. Another interesting thing about sauerkraut is the gas that you get from eating raw cabbage, perhaps, uh -huh. in your intestine, when you make sauerkraut, that gas is released by the microbes. The microbes release that gas while you're... So sauerkraut is will almost certainly give you less gas or no gas compared to raw cabbage. Mm -hmm. So people who think that cabbage doesn't agree with them, sauerkraut might. And sauerkraut is very easy. It's cheap to make. And if you don't like it really sour, when you're making it, you control it. So if you just want somewhat sour, still crunchy, lightly sour cabbage mm -hmm. that you can have as a side dish, more of a coleslaw kind of thing, you can do that. Or if you want it really, really sour and soft and flossy so you can put it on your sandwich or whatever, wherever you're putting it, right. you can do that too. When you're making it, you can find your own sauerkraut. Uh -huh. Maybe you like it with caraway seeds and maybe you like it with ginger and maybe you really want kimchi and find the sauerkraut that you love versus buying it. And it gives you a chance to experiment a little in the kitchen. I guess that's another piece of advice I would give people who are newer to this area is don't be afraid of the kitchen and get a knife and a cutting board that you like and, you know, get some spices, ginger, garlic, or whatever it is, and be ready to play a little bit and don't be afraid. Yeah. I guess don't be afraid. That's a good one. Yeah, perfect. Well, I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. I used to have a harder time talking with people about health and food because I had figured out a lot of what made sense to me about food and health and I was so sure that I was right. Uh-huh. All the other ways were wrong. And I'd try and tell somebody, you know, why they should buy the chicken from the farmer's market rather than the chicken at the grocery store or something like that. And I would get to this point in a conversation with somebody where they would just stop listening to me mm -hmm. and I would get more and more frustrated. And this isn't even a single time I failed. This is a, an entire pattern of failure right. for me. Right. And I was led to understand that you need to meet people where they are and you can't hit them over the head with your idea, even if you know you're right. And then even if you know you're right, when it's in the realm of food and health. Are you really? Bio-individuality. Yep. <laughs> I don't remember the saying effectively. Is it a feather is more powerful than a sword? I forget yep. exactly. Often 
you can't go from zero to a hundred in one conversation and trying harder won't lead to more success. Yeah. And in particular with my mom, if I can call her out, when I used to try to convince her, you know, I'd say, oh, you mustn't eat blah, 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 blah. And she would sort of stop listening to me and not want to hear about it at some point. And now I think my approach is more, if I think there's something she could be eating, I'll bring it to her and give it to her Mm -hmm. and just, I won't hit her over the head with it, but I'll just leave it in her kitchen and, you know, ask her about it a week or two later and try this out, try and get her curious about it. Yeah. In that respect, I think when you're talking about health, people are a lot like cats. Like if you want your cat to do something, you can't just yell at it until it does it. And you can't put it on a leash and try and drag it towards that thing. Right. You need to get the cat curious about it. And then the cat will engage on its own sometimes. Yeah. That's a beautiful metaphor. That is so true. That is so true. So what do you consider your biggest success? Getting my first book published. I feel like that's a big deal. And Huge. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Part of it is You know, first of all, to anyone who's out there who wants to write a book about health and nutrition, very few people will make huge piles of money doing that. So don't do it for the money. Right. It's a platform where you can express your ideas and share them with people. And for me, part of what drives me is wanting to help people become experts on themselves. Mm -hmm. As I said before, because I think a lot of the suffering we see comes from people not being experts on themselves and trusting other people to fix their health. And then other people's motivations are different from yours. And so their motivation is to sell you pharmaceuticals and that's what they're going to do. And you can't really blame them because that's what their job is and what they get paid for and what their shareholders expect them to do. And they'll get fired if they don't do that. Right. You can't really blame them. But getting people to become experts on themselves and getting people to get curious about health. As I said earlier, I think what got me curious about health was unfortunately my dad's, you know, poor health. And that motivated me to get curious about health. If people can get curious about their own health without having to have their own crisis or a family crisis, even better. And so if I can help do that for people, then that's a success. And so having a book allows me to do that on a transpersonal for people I don't know and haven't ever met and might never meet. So that helps affect change in the world beyond just my immediate fear. Yeah, well, and quite honestly, I've watched the process. I've watched several of my friends go through a process of writing a book, publishing a book, and it's a big deal. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And what drives you? I want the world to look a little different from how it looks now. Mm -hmm. And so I guess in the biggest picture sense, that's what drives me, trying to re- formulate the world a little bit. And I think that happens by having people self-actualize and start thinking more for themselves. I realize that all of these are very general and even almost cliched Uh notions. We can get more specific about it by saying, helping people understand how to cook for themselves or how to Mm -hmm. understand what their body needs and how to talk about food and how to vote with their wallet as far as where their food comes from and how it's made yeah, and how to understand the media and how to understand when they're being lied to for the sake of marketing and how to understand when they're listening to the news and on the news, there's a report, something like scientists say that blah, 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 blah. And you get about 15 seconds of a news soundbite. You need to be able to parse that and understand that some scientists may have said something sort of like that. But there's probably a lot of context that's not being conveyed in that 
soundbite. And if you asked the scientists about it, they would probably say, well, that's not exactly what I said. And so if all of a sudden, like scientists say that acai berries are great for you, it's probably not quite that simple. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they're going to solve all your problems either. Right. Getting people to be a little more sophisticated consumers of media and information, I guess, yeah. is, is another part of what drives me. Because we're in this weird, toxic echo chamber right now in so many realms. Health is one of them. Yeah. Helping people break out of that for themselves and just hang up that particular phone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of what you just shared are a lot of the reasons I do the podcast. I want to give people data that they can think about and research. That's why I ask the next question. That is, if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? One book is way too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and since it synthesizes a lot of my thoughts, I guess, I might have to recommend Real Food Fermentation, Mm -hmm. my first book, because everything I had been thinking about up until I wrote that book, I put some of into that book. And so that gets them the benefits of some of the other books that I read before. And something that you said, providing a jumping off point, like there's no one book that will tell everyone everything they need. And there's no one podcast that will tell everyone what they need. Mm -hmm. But getting people curious and giving them the resources so that they can go out and research for themselves, giving them a short reading list and say, hey, you might be interested in this, you might be interested in this, and they might be interested in some of those things, they might not be, they can choose. But just giving them a place to start, Mm -hmm. I think, a healthy place to start. Yeah. And I'm still going to ask you, give me one book that's not yours. Okay. I guess it would depend on the person I'm talking to, but can I say if for this kind of person, this book for this kind of, can I say that? Is that okay? You're talking to me. What book would you have me read? If you haven't read it already, there's a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. I can't believe you're just saying this. Daniel Quinn is my hero. Ishmael is the book that I suggest that everybody read, and he just recently passed. He passed in February. I know. Yeah. Yay for that book. It changed my life forever. How about you? Me too. Exactly. It blew my mind. Yeah. Recently. Wow. That's a recent one for you. He's got 14 other books out there. (laughs) Go check them out. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I've sort of already given it away, which is become an expert on yourself. You know, your own health is something that you can't afford to outsource completely. (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. You can hire subcontractors, but you have to be the general contractor. And if not, then your body will not do its best for you, especially as you get older. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Alex. It's been a great pleasure, Greg. I could, we could keep doing this for hours. We absolutely could. There's a lot of great things that you shared today. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? I have a website called feedmelikeyoumeanit.com. I try to post things that are happening on there, like if I'm doing a talk here or there. Next things are coming up, I'm doing a workshop in Mexico. I'm going to be at a, speaking at a conference in Los Angeles. Oh, nice. I'll be at the New Mexico Fermentation Festival this summer. Mm-hmm. All those things are on the website. Perfect. So you can find my books on Amazon, but there are links to them from the website. Mm-hmm. So website's probably the best place to go. Perfect, perfect. And I also have your other book here in front of me, Kombucha, Kafir, and Beyond. And I think we're going to have you come on here in the next month or so and talk about this because kombucha is a gig on its own. Indeed. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash feed me like you mean it. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles 
podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. We want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. As listeners to our podcast, you know that I love experimenting. And as urban farmers and gardeners, I can predict that you probably have done your fair share of experiments with new seed varieties. But if you are as busy as I am, sometimes just finding new seeds is a challenge. Well, what if someone else did the work for you? I'd like to introduce you to Seed Bank Box, an excellent source of non-GMO and heirloom seeds delivered right to your door. Each month, you will receive eight to 10 surprise seed varieties with information for each seed on a card you'll keep. It's time to start experimenting again. Let Seed Bank Box help you plant the garden of your dreams. Visit urbanfarm.org forward slash seed bank box for more information and to sign up. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.